0: As I mentioned, a year ago, about a year ago this time, I had to do a debate in California. There were three different groups. There was a group that fully believes in evolution, essentially no different between their beliefs and what an atheist would believe. They just believe that God tagged it onto there. There was another ministry called Reasons to Believe, and they believe in evolutionary creation. With the emphasis on evolutionary. And then there was the Institute for Creation Research, myself, who fully believes that God created exactly as it says in the Bible, instantaneously. He spoke and things that did not previously exist came into existence. And so we had to do a debate and we we were given constraints so that it wasn't a free-for-all and we had to answer three key questions. The first one was, on that. How do you understand and interpret Genesis 1 and 2? The second one was, what is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with the Christian faith? And the third was, are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Well those are very, very good questions. They're questions that any one of us might face on a day-to-day basis. So we had to answer those questions and I put together a whiteboard talk. Can you see that here? Even better, right here. Look at that. For this is for Terry Cruiser because his his eyes are getting so old that uh, that we we put this monitor as here especially for him. In fact, they actually had it on the front, but I said no. You better move it back. It'll be way too obvious on that. So. Everybody likes to do a whiteboard talk, but I'm not actually going to write on this. So we're going to make it so that you could actually like, look, wow, we can zoom in and voila, I instantly write on that. Now you notice I started with question number three. Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? That That was my question. That was really where we shine. And the other two groups are not really embracing that. But this is the most important one of the three are you open to the natural world pointing to design? And the answer is clearly yes. The reason why I look design is because I was designed. And the reason why I look so incredibly designed is because <laughs> I, I am. And that's the way it is. So are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Let's look at some areas of design. So I gave a good answer. I said yes. The workmanship Seen in living things is best explained by intelligent design. Now, I picked every one of those words on purpose, including the word workmanship. Workmanship, that is an excellent word. That's what the Bible says things are. They're the work of His what? Hands. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament shows His what? Handiwork. And even in Romans chapter 1, where it says the invisible things of God are clearly seen... Being understood by the things that are made. That word made is used only one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 where it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So what the Bible is really saying is invisible things of God, his eternal power, his Godhead are understood by his Workmanship. In fact, the Bible says nine times, we're the work of his hands or the work of his fingers. We are his workmanship. So, I'm expecting this is how you make some scientific, scientific correlations. I am expecting living things to show the features of workmanship. Now, I have this little slide advancer in my hand right here that I've been using to advance my slides. Does this show signs of? Workmanship. The answer is yes. But if I were to ask you to describe what, what are you seeing here? What do you see? Some people struggle with this. So let me point out what you are seeing. You are seeing multiple parts working together for a purpose. Multiple parts working together for a purpose. That's what you're seeing with workmanship. And only... <laughs> Human-designed things and living things have these exquisite multiple parts working together for a purpose. Natural processes do not do it by themselves. This is a major pushback. So I am saying, specifically, I am expecting when I look at living things to see evidences of workmanship. So, what's cool about this whiteboard is we can actually then Like zoom in and I only want to look at one element of workmanship and that is creatures adaptability adaptability why? because whoever controls the explanation for adaptation is controlling the creation evolution debate, it's like holding the crossroads in a war or in a battle if living things were static if living things could not change could a theory of evolution ever get going the answer is no If you were as static as your chair, Terry, (laughs) if you were as static as your chair, you could never evolve. But because living things can adapt, living things do adjust, living things do change, then you can get a theory of adaptation going. So, as you see it there on the screen, this is a really challenging environment, isn't it? That's a cave. What if a creature suddenly found itself in this cave environment? Hmm, how would they adjust to that? Well, look at the picture there below. You see two fish. One's pigmented with eyeballs, and you see another one that is hypopigmented with no eyes. That's a blind cave fish. And when you go into these caves, that's what you see. You see these blind cave fish. How in the world do they go from eyeballs and pigmentation to no eyeballs and lack of pigmentation? Do they do it slowly accumulating mutations over long, long periods of time, slowly losing their eyeballs? Or is it possible that these creatures were designed to adapt, built to adapt right from the beginning, so that when when one of these fish detects itself in this cave, within a generation or two, they could lose their eyes. That's really pretty cool, if that's possible, and that's exactly what they do. And research... Is finding these days, then when we look at adaptation, it's characterized by these words. It is rapid. It is highly regulated. It is repeatable. Many, many times it's even reversible, where they can adapt this way when they need to, and when they need to, they can adapt back. So it's adaptable, and the solutions that they produce are so, so targeted to the problem that they are trying to solve, like a cave darkness, that they are even highly, highly predictable. So these, when when I say regulated, rapid, repeatable, and targeted solutions, describe adaptation, do those words sound like something that is random, or designed? Designed. Designed. And this is really going to pound on my debate opponents, because these are changes that are highly, highly designed. Let's take on some of these icons of evolution. What you see there up on the screen are multiple types of fish. At the top are the sighted forms, and at the bottom are the blind forms. And there's over 120 different species of fish which can go from sighted to blind. And they do it very, very quickly. In fact, this paper was published in 2013, and it shows that these fish can go from a sighted form with pigmentation to a blind form without pigmentation in one generation. That's kind of like a wow moment, folks. That's one generation. Mama lays her eggs and the babies detect when they are in the cave and when they develop, by the time they reach maturity, no eyes and no pigmentation. That's quite remarkable. How do they do it? They detect when they're in the cave but they're not looking for They're not looking for light and dark. They can detect how much electricity the water can conduct, which is different between a cave and a stream. And when they detect that change in conductivity, as they develop, the pathways for developing eyes are shut down. It's quite remarkable. And they do this so they can rapidly adapt to those. Well, here's another icon of evolution, these finches. For those of you who are up to speed, they're called whose finches? Darwin's finches. Because you see all of these different shapes in their beak. Big, strong beaks, tiny, delicate beaks and things. And we're told that nature has this selective power that can select for one or the other depending on what food they're eating. And it's going to... You don't want to be selective with natural selection because that means you're dead, <laughs> But what if these birds could detect the food that they're eating and even during embryologic development, as they're developing in the egg, they can adjust the beak to match their conditions? Well, this paper was published, for those who are really the scientific nerds, I always put the scientific paper up there. Epigenetic variation between urban and rural populations of Darwin's finches. Let me explain what they did. You had the urban finches, and you had the rural finches. The rural finches were the dominant ones. But then people moved in. And when people move in, they start throwing out human-based trash, trash food. What do animals like? They like to eat that human food. And so you ended up with a population of urban finches. Urban finches that were no longer eating the traditional rural food, but they ate this human food. And within one to two generations, their beak length changed because they're eating the human food. And how do they do that? They didn't change their DNA. It wasn't mutations due to DNA. As it says there, these were epigenetic variations. Let me explain what that is. That means you change the expression of your genes, but you don't change the genes themselves There are tiny little machines inside your cell, little molecular machines, and they go up and down the DNA, and they put markers, little markers on the DNA that says, run this gene longer, or don't even run this gene at all. So they put special markers on it. They don't change it, but they change the way it's expressed, and it can be done very, very rapidly, And those same machines can come back and they can change the markers or remove the markers. But you didn't know you had these little microscopic things going around inside of you doing that. And look what the quote of the paper says. Growing evidence suggests that epigenetic mechanisms may also be involved in what? Rapid adaptation to new environments. So this isn't that slow change that everybody's being taught about wrongly. In school these days. It's not even genetic at all. Well what about these? How many of you remember these in your textbook? The old peppered moth. Where there used to be all of these light colored moths in England. And then those dirty little brits started burning coal by the tons. Creating what? Climate change. And things like that. (laughs) And they polluted all the buildings. Polluted all the buildings. Making everything black with coal soot. And then those white moths took out like a sore thumb, and the birds came and ate them, and we were supposed to see natural selection and happen, in action. Well, that isn't quite the story. This interesting paper was published in 2015, in 2016 here, the industrial melanism mutation in British pepper moths is a transposable element. Let me explain that large mouthful of mumbo transposable element here's probably a new a new thought for some of you your dna is not static there are sections of dna called transposable elements that can be clipped out and they can be moved to other sections in your dna and pasted back in that's why they're called what transposable elements because they can be transposed but when they are cut out and pasted in they change the expression of your genes. And so you have light and dark colored varieties of this moth, and 96% of the dark ones all have a section of the DNA cut out, transposed, and inserted right at the proper spot to regulate dark coloration as they develop. Highly regulated, make them black. And 0%... None of the white moths have this transposable element. Does that sound like a highly regulated mechanism? It is. It's because these, these moths are able to detect. 95 is actually 95 some percent of black moths had this 20,000. 20,000 bases of your DNA have been transposed to make them black with the associated color. So all three of these major icons of evolution, the blind cavefish, the Darwin's finches, and the peppered moths, are highly regulated, targeted mechanisms that show all of these features of design. I put this picture in here for Terry Cruiser because he's gonna say, I wish I never invited this guy to come to Arkansas. Because this, this was a really young Terry Cruiser back in the day on that. <laughs> And that when his beard was black. Anyway, so <laughs> he, he would love to catch a fish like this. I'll bet he would. What kind of fish is this? Pike. It's a predatory fish. And he's going ice fishing. Do you recognize that? And that, that's, to, that's like music to your soul there, Terry. He's up there ice fishing. Well, these pike will eat bass. They can eat these carp. They could even eat a trout. They don't care what they eat. And as long as these carp are not being eaten, but a bass or a trout is, it's happy. But this is what's cool about these carp. They're called Crucian carp. As soon as one of these pike eat one of those Crucian carp right there, and they digest it, and out goes into the water little carpy vapors, what used to be a carp, in that the other carp can detect that, The other carp detect all of those vapors, and within a day, they start to morph into a different shape that's thicker, taller, faster, and harder to eat by those pike. Wow, that's quite remarkable. Within a day, it detects when its cousin has been eaten, and it can change. It would be like this. I need to change. So if Terry Cruiser gets eaten by something, (laughs) I can detect it. And then I can change so that I'm not like Terry Cruiser. Wow, that would be like, that would be remarkable, quite remarkable here. Okay, enough of the Terry Cruiser jokes on that, if I can resist. But that's that's an amazing, amazing fish, what it does. How about this one right here? So now we've gone from the Arctic of Minnesota, and we're down to the Caribbean, and these are called reef Races Reef races, because they live on these reefs down there. And you see up there, here's a male, brightly colored male. And this is a female. Little males have a little harem of females, about 10 to 15 females in their little harem that they cover there. But what happens if a fisherman comes by and boom, fishes out that male, gone? You've got a lonely little harem out there. Well, one of those females detects detects that the male is gone, and within a day, her ovaries regress. She grows testes, and she morphs into a male. Wow, the desire of females worldwide. I mean, that's just like man alive. It's just uh, just a rapid transformation there, able to detect those things. So. What is happening here in all of these cases? You have a changed condition, cave, whatever. The organism can, here's the key points, it detects the change due to a sensor. There is a signal sent into them. There is programming that says, if you detect this, then do this. That's called logic. If, then, logic. And then it has an appropriate output response. So please repeat after me. There are sensors, logic, and output. That's how it works. That's how a man-made adaptable system works. There's a thermostat somewhere on this room, which is a sensor, which sends something to a computer, which turns the AC or the heat on. An adaptable system. Sensors, logic, output. That's exactly how organisms do it because they display workmanship. Workmanship with analogous elements to man-made things. Here's another interesting fish. This one lives down in Mexico. It lives in polluted streams with hydrogen sulfide, which are normally toxic. But these fish live in that. They live in that area and they're doing quite well. How do you think they do it? They have a sensor for what? Hydrogen sulfide. When they detect it, where do you think the sensor is? It's on their gills. That's kind of cool. All the water flows by that, so they can detect it. When they detect it, as you see there on the screen, they collectively upregulate over 1,600 genes and downregulate 1,800 genes. And these genes that are changed in their expression are not willy nilly, but they specifically relate to protecting them from hydrogen sulfide. Some of them change the absorption of it, some of them change how fast they can excrete it, and some of them change how fast their liver, liver will metabolize it. Highly targeted, specific, logic based responses to these conditions. Oh, here's a cool one. What does it say? Mice can warn sons and grandsons of danger via sperm. (laughs) How in the world does that happen? Well, (laughs) just pretend you're a biologist here. Kind of the the evil Dr. No biologist. You take a bunch of male mice. You put them on a, a metal plate that has electrodes on it that can shock their feet painfully. You expose them to cherry blossom odor, an odor like cherry blossom. And the minute they smell that, you shock their feet. Expose them, shock them, expose them, shock them, shock, 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 shock. Then you take those male mice and you mate them with a naive female mouse. Naive female, not the kind of naive females that men are looking for these days, but a naive female that has never smelled cherry blossom odor in her life. She has pups, and you take those pups because you're the evil doctor, no biologist, and you sacrifice them immediately upon birth. And you stain through their olfactory region. You stain for bulbs that can sense odors and the nerves that go those back, and you stain them with a blue stain. And this is exactly what you see. For controls, these are the olfactory bulbs, this little bud, and here are the nerves going back to their brain, For those that are controls that haven't been exposed, their dads haven't been exposed to cherry blossom odor. But you go all the way over here, and these are the pups that were born to dads who were exposed to cherry blossom odor. And there are their nerves, and there is over a 200% increase in the olfactory bulbs specific for, guess what? Cherry blossom odor. In these offspring that have never smelled it, but their dad smelled it passed on information, epigenetic information that, and those pups are developing, it says build more olfactory receptors for this. Highly, highly specific. Wow! That's quite remarkable, those changes there. Well, how in the world are they doing it? They're doing it with the same mechanisms that man-made things work. Same elements in the same types of systems. So every one of us has used a cruise control Guess what's on your car? A speed sensor that's sending data to a computer on your car that says, if you start to slow down, then push on the accelerator, or actually pull on the cable on the accelerator for this. That's how it works, and that's exactly how these organisms are adapting with the same identical types of elements as man-made things. So the engineered capacity... And any adaptable thing is put in up front. So if you and I were engineers and we had to design a space shuttle to go through all of those different environments, we would sit there and we would brainstorm. What are all the challenges that this is going to face? What must be their solutions? Wouldn't we do that? And we would build it into the space shuttle up front so that solutions precede. The challenges evolutionists say the solutions are due to the challenges totally wrong totally wrong could you build a space shuttle where the solutions are due to the challenges the answer would be no they would never come back they would be destroyed due to the challenges you must have the solutions preceding the challenges does that make sense that's exactly how it is with you and me and all of the creatures. They have solutions and potential solutions in them before they even detect them. This really corresponds to design. And therefore creatures do show the workmanship, which reveals the wisdom and the engineering genius of the Lord Jesus Christ who put them all together. They have a tight tight correlation to the incredible design of man-made things now this is a strong testimony and a strong witness that living creatures were really designed because they function by the same mechanisms as man-made things do now if what I'm saying is really a scientifically based explanation we should be able to make some predictions Because that's what good scientific theories do. They enable you to make some predictions. And so I have some predictions. I'm going to predict that creatures are going to self-adjust. I like that word better than adapt. Adapt has been kind of ruined by evolutionists. But what they really do is they self-adjust. Just like a man-made thing would do. They self-adjust to their conditions. Creatures are going to continue to self-adjust to changing environments by the same engineering principles as human things. I'm not saying that God had to do it that way. I'm saying that God did do it this way. And he did it so that it would be a witness. And I am making a prediction that says, the more and more and more we study living creatures, and the more we understand their systems, they will be explainable by engineering principles. And there won't be a time when they aren't aren't explainable. And the more we learn, it's just going to show the infinite wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, I'm going to say that the more and more we discover on these creatures that 100% of their adaptive capacity, their ability, their capabilities are going to be built into them. That they're not deriving capability from the environment in some way. It has been built into them up front. So now you've heard two predictions of a mechanism that says these organisms are designed and they're probably closely tracking environmental changes. So here's a real new thought for us to approach biology with, that organisms have sensors to detect and systems that continuously track changing environments over time. And that we need to see organisms completely different from what we were taught in school and how evolutionists think of them They see them as passive modeling clay being shaped and molded by their conditions over long, long, long periods of time. And I'm saying that's totally wrong, 100% wrong. They're not passive modeling clay being shaped by their environment. Rather, the Lord designed organisms to be active, problem-solving entities that detect their challenges, take on their challenges, solve their challenges, and therefore they are fruitful... And they're able to multiply and they are able to fill the earth just like it says in the Bible. Completely different way of looking at creatures. Now, this was worth the price of admission right there. That is to radically change how you see creatures. And, you know, as I did this debate, I'm looking over at my opponents and all I see on their love faces like this look of, wow. I've never thought about it like that. How am I going to respond to this galooza guy? (laughs) Because this is a radically new way of looking at them. Well that was the answer to the first question. Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Obviously I am. And obviously they do show evidences of design. Well the next one was really a two-part question. What is your take on Darwinian evolution? Question number one. And number two, What is its compatibility with Christian faith? Those are good questions. Good questions. I have more than a take. I really have a biblical response. So these are my answers to those two questions. Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory. So you want to know my take on Darwinian evolution? I'm not going to say people who hold to it are nuts or they're crazy or they're Looney Tunes. I'm not going to label them with any words like that, like, like they do to us. I'm just going to say it's a weak scientific theory, period. It's weak. And the what about compatibility with Christian faith? It's a poor explanation for the design of living things also. And the basic premises of the theory cannot be reconciled with biblical Christian faith. What's the key word there? Biblical. Biblical. I, I hate to say we have to kind of like define it. I'm talking about biblical Christian faith. All right, let's take the first question. What's your take on Darwinian evolution? Weak. Doesn't explain the design of living things. Why? Well, if evolution is true, you have to get life going by natural processes. That means no intervention by God. You have to have natural processes working on natural elements to explain the origin of life. And as it says up there, nobody has a clue of how life began. And that is true. And you can say this to your friends with all confidence, there's not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet by any leading research institution that can document a natural origin of life. None. Zero. It's not out there. So if you're here from the University of Arkansas and you're doubting what I'm saying, just bring me the paper. Bring me the paper and I will change it. But it's not out there. And so if evolution is true, you have to get life going and you have to be able to change it from one kind to a fundamentally different kind of creature And all observations, and all of human experience without a single exception confirms that organisms reproduce consistently and faithfully after their kind over and over and over again. And there is not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet which documents one creature changing into a fundamentally different kind of creature. So no matter how adamantly professors at the University of Arkansas stomp their feet and pound the pulpit that evolution is a fact, 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 You cannot claim it's a fact until you show life can get going and it can change from one type of creature to another by scientific observation. And if you can't document those two things, no matter how red in the face you get, it's not a fact. It's not even close to a fact. On top of that, it doesn't even follow the predicted course of evolution where you have... Some simple type of life starting and then branching out over time to the diversity of life on Earth to where you get all the major varieties at the end of evolution. But when you look at the fossil record, all of the major body plans, you know, vertebrates, invertebrates, arthropods, and things like that, they show up at the bottom of the fossil record with no evolutionary ancestry. So you don't have a branching tree, you have a forest of individual trees. It doesn't follow the evolutionary pattern at all, and evolutionists know this. On top of that, if similar features are supposed to be explained by common ancestry, there are literally hundreds of types of similar features which have nothing to do with common ancestry. That's why sharks, which are fish, have the same kinds of flippers and fins in many ways as dolphins, which are mammals. And we have a similar eye to a squid. And bats and whales use the same echolocation, same genetics, identical genetics for echolocation in bats and whales, even though there's, there's no evolutionary linkage between any of those. Unless you go way, 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 way way back. But no linkage that's gonna show any type of common ancestry. Now evolutionists thought that was true. In 1963, Ernst Mayer, who was the probably the leading evolutionist at the time. He said if you're looking for similar genetics between these organisms, it's futile because they've they've evolved and diverged and evolved and diverged over millions and millions of years so you're not expecting to find similar genes between like a, a, a whale and a bat. But nobody could look at that time. Henry Morris, who was the founder of our ministry, in 1975, before anybody was even sequencing DNA, said that we predicted that you would find common information due to common design. And the man at the bottom of the screen, in 2005, a major evolutionist, Sean Carroll, said after they looked for those similar information and they found it, it was inescapable and it was stunning and that nobody predicted you that you would find common genes for common features in something like a fly and an elephant. But you do. Because there's common information for common design. On top of that, <clears throat> I'm told that there's these vestigial whale hip bones. And you can go to museums, probably in Arkansas as well, where you find suspended from little wires two little bones hanging down here that are supposedly leftover hip bones that when this land-based creature went back into the water and lost its legs and turned into flippers and things, that you had these little bones left over. And they're a sure evidence, sign of ev- ev- evolution, because they were degenerated hip bones. We said, I kind of doubt that. Well, these researchers, through the two guys on the right over here, researchers at a university in California, they started looking for these bones and whales and dolphins and things like that. And they found that these bones are absolutely necessary in order for these animals to copulate underwater. Can you imagine the forces and the stresses of doing that underwater? I imagine too long but if that's can you that would be quite something so you need some bony anchors in the soft tissue in order for that to happen and they serve a useful function then they're not hip bones at all have nothing to do with hip bones on that and by the way probably haven't seen this this is this is a spotted female dolphin and this is a bottlenose dolphin and they're mating They're two different species. They're gonna have fertile offspring on that. Two different species of dolphin mating. I have no idea why this male is hanging out, little pervert. I mean, you wanna, on that. But anyway, that's what happens there. So they're wrong about a lot of stuff. We're gonna cover some of these in the last talk of the morning here. They're wrong about your appendix, tailbone, gill slits, junk DNA. And human and chimps being so closely related that they had almost 98% similarity and that there was a bunch of junk DNA. They were wrong about all of those kinds of things. They were wrong about Neanderthals being these brutish cavemen, ape-like creatures. When we now know that Neanderthals and human beings, because they were all human beings, mated with each other. And all of us in this room have DNA that's from the Neanderthals. Some of us more than others. But... uh, (laughs) I, I see Lynn's laughing. She caught the joke. All right, good. <laughs> it just went zoop over to Terry. Anyway, did you ever notice he has a simian brow? But um, on there, wow. Actually, I have a simian brow. They were wrong. They have a lot of imagination with this. On the right-hand side of the screen is an artist's rendition of what they think the transitional form Lucy looks like. I mean look at that. That's a, that uh, isn't that like a human looking face on there? Put a little lipstick on her. You might think she's from Texas or something like that. <laughs> I mean it's just, uh, it's just amazing. But on the left hand side of the screen are the bones. Do you see a major leap of imagination from these bones to this? A massive leap of imagination. Not just 1975, but in 2015, here were the bones. Here were the bones for this this fossil, Homo naledi, and here's the artist's rendition. Another massive leap of imagination. No matter how how firmly you pound on the pulpit at your universities and schools saying it's a fact, it's an imagination-driven theory in many, many ways. But what about its compatibility with Christian faith? I said it doesn't doesn't and cannot align with biblical Christian faith. That's because the Bible clearly teaches, even as Dr. Ebert mentioned last night, that there was a real Adam and a real Eve. But evolutionists, even atheistic evolutionists going back to 1960, Adam's ancestor, say there was not a real, literal Adam and Eve. In fact, we can contrast what the Bible claims and what evolutionists claims. The Bible tells us how God created, that it was a direct creation from God. And Dr. Hebert mentioned <clears throat> excuse me, last night that some of those genealogies, like in Luke chapter 3, go from, go from the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, a real Adam. But the evolutionists and the theistic evolutionists say there wasn't a real Adam, that whoever that was descended from an ape-like ancestor The Bible tells us who these people were, that they were the first human beings, Adam and Eve. The evolutionists say, we don't know that, it's completely indeterminate. The Bible tells us how many, a pair, a pair. But evolutionists assert there had to be a population, and I've heard estimates ranging anywhere from at least 10,000 to 100,000. So we can't bring these things together. And most importantly, even as Dr. Hebert mentioned last night, it relates so much to salvation. Where the Bible says, in all of these passages that you see on the screen, that there was a real man who really sinned, brought sin, and real judgment, and real death, needing a real Savior. That's what the Bible says. And evolutionist. evolutionists... Theistic or otherwise would deny all of that. So it relates to salvation quite importantly. On top of that, there's no way we can reconcile the death-driven worldview of evolutionists and selectionists, whether they're theistic or atheistic, with the biblical view of death. In their worldview, this, survival of the what? Fittest. And it's always survival. It has been and always will be, and it is inescapable that they don't have a death-driven worldview. And that is why even as Dr. Heber quoted Steve Jobs right here, this was a quote from his commencement address at Stanford University when he was passing away of pancreatic cancer. He's the one who said, death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. And so all selectionists live by a death-fueled, death-driven world view, and in their view, somehow it leads to good. And And the theistic selectionists say, somehow God is using it for good. But the Bible says that death is a curse. Death is an enemy. And death will be destroyed. And it is not the Lord's means for good. So these are incompatible worldviews and approaches. On top of that, I'm told by evolutionists that when I see definite hallmarks of design, I can't say that they were really designed, but they only look like they were designed, but really weren't. So what you see there up on the screen are a pair of what? Gears. Can everybody see the gears? These gears... Are in the back part of this leg of this little insect called a plant hopper, which does what? Hops from plants to plants. And it launches itself. It launches itself from zero to 700 G's, and its legs snap out in one 30 millionth of a second. Bang. And it wants to launch straight and it wants those legs to extend at the same time and how does it make them extend? at the back at the hips they're connected by a set of gears that's quite remarkable now when I see gears I see design I don't see something that looks like it was designed but really wasn't I see something that was really designed And so I can't can't bring Evidences of workmanship which the Bible says are there to this this delusional thought. That it looks like it's designed but really, really wasn't. And so that's why I would say Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory and it is completely incompatible with biblical Christian faith. Which then brought us to the first question but I held towards last because it's easier to explain my position now. How in the world do you interpret... And understand Genesis 1 and 2. They want you to lead off with that. But I think it's better lead off with the scientific evidence. Tell them why you think. Where you see the workmanship. Why it fits together. What the problems with evolutionary thinking are. And selectionist thinking. And then end with. Well this is how I interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2. So this was my answer. Genesis 1 and 2. Are historical narratives. Period. Not allegory, not poetry, not a sing song story. These are real historical narratives. Did you notice I didn't use the word story? I didn't use the story at all the word story at all. In fact, we as Sunday school teachers should aspunge that I means get rid of. That word story. Don't come up and tell say. Let me tell you the creation what story. Let me tell you the Christmas story, the Easter story, and all of those kinds of things. Because our young people hear the word story and they think it's a story. Let me tell you the account of creation. Let me tell you about the historical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would be doing our young people a a big, big favor if we got rid of the word Easter story, Christmas story, and all of those kinds of things. These are historical narratives of how God created the natural realm. And I give words their normal meaning in their normal context. Normal meaning, normal context. You notice I didn't say literal, literal. I give words their normal meaning. Sometimes there are so poetic words. Sometimes there are some allegories. But I give words their normal meaning, normal context. This is what I was taught when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. You give words their normal meaning and normal context, just like you would do any other type of literature. So in fact, during the question and answer session of that debate, Sean McDowell said, So you said you interpret the Bible literally. I said, No, I interpret it normally. Which means I give words their normal meaning and their normal context. So what do I mean by that? Well. I'm a medical doctor, and I write prescriptions for people. And people come to the office in fact, they like prescriptions. Nobody likes to go to the, the doctor's office, pay 40 or 50 dollars and say, "Well, you'll get better with in a few days. just go home." They feel a little ripped. So they like to have something to take home with them, like a prescription, even if it's for normal saline. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I got something in my hand. I still send you the $50 bill. But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> you walk out. So here's a script. It's, it's pretty easy. It's for a blood, pre- blood pressure medication called a How much? 150 milligrams. How? By mouth. How often? Daily. Atenolol. 150 milligrams by mouth daily. Is that pretty straightforward? What if you took your script for this drug to the pharmacist? They said, wow, what does Dr. Galooza mean by mouth? By mouth, by mouth. What does he mean by that? Mouth of a river, mouth of a cave, you know. How am I going to interpret by mouth? So he changes that to just say a natural opening. You know, 150 milligrams by a natural opening daily on that. You know, nobody does that, even though, even though mouth can mean a natural opening. But we say, we give words their normal meaning in their normal context. So when I'm saying mouth, I mean what? This, this. That's how I interpret the Bible. Normal meaning and normal context. When I was an engineer for 10 years in Guam, we had a we had a barracks rehab contract, pretty straightforward. And one of the clauses in the contract said, contractor will apply two coats of paint. Two coats of paint. Well the contractor went out, mobilized, applied one coat of paint, and painted all the buildings with one coat and left. The government inspector came out and said, the contract says two coats of paint. The contractor sent us a letter back and said, what the contract means is one coat thick enough to equal two coats. (laughs) And he had put on a thick coat of paint. We came back and said, no, two coats of paint means two coats of paint. You see, we had a dispute over the, over the normal usage of words. This thing went to court. Who do you think won? The innocent government or the wily contractor that stuck it to the government one more time? Well, the government won. The government won this and it was pretty easy. And this is what the judge says In contract law, words must be construed to their normal meaning in the context of the specifications. Otherwise, the intentions of either party becomes unknowable. May I suggest this is how we should approach the Bible. We give words their normal meaning and their normal context. Otherwise, the intentions of the giver become unknowable. Unknowable. And there's good reason why we should do this. You can actually look at the grammar of poetic passages in the Bible and the grammar of historical narratives and they differ. You can plot those out. And look where Genesis 1 and 2 plots out, right up there with narrative passages. The grammar is different from poetic passages. So there's good scientific justification for doing that. But here's a really important one. This was a basis of the Reformation. So Luther and Calvin and Wycliffe and Tyndale and all of these people were were holding firmly to the fact that words can be given their normal meaning in their normal context. Why? Because the dominant teaching of the church at that time was that you, you, you lay people could not understand the Bible for yourselves but that you had to have the clergy tell you what the Bible said. That you were incapable of doing that. That you had to have a special group of people, the clergy, interpret the Bible for you. Well, the reformers, all of those reformers disagreed. They said, God is able to communi- quite, communicate quite clearly what he wants to say. That God can say what he means, and he means what he says. And anybody at any time can interpret the Bible for themselves. If they give their words their normal meaning in their normal context. That's what this, that, There was a major part on this division over this in the Reformation. And there was good biblical authority for them to say so. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses said, You don't have to go across the ocean and find someone to come and interpret the Bible for you. He says, But it is in your heart. It is on your very lips. And all of those passages in John 14, 15, and 16, where the Lord says... When he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will do what? Lead you into all truth. It doesn't say you need to have a clergyman do Do that for you. And then in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans, who were more noble than the Thessalonians, who didn't read their Bibles, but it says the Bereans, when Paul was teaching them, they searched their Bible daily to see if what Paul said was correct. They didn't need the holy man of Paul to tell them what was true. They looked at their Bibles to see if the holy man was true. That's how they did it. And so reformers had very good reason, biblical reason for saying that anybody can interpret the Bible for themselves. And so you don't need religious authorities to tell you how to understand the Bible. But the threat we face today is from scientific authorities. There's a whole segment of Christianity who says, no, 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 no. When it comes to science and the Bible, you can't do it for yourself. You need to have scientific authorities tell you what the Bible says. And it's amazing how they always pick these atheistic authorities to tell you what the Bible says. You don't need these kinds of authorities. And the real issue is biblical clarity, which is the basis for biblical authority. Why is clarity the basis for authority? Because if you could not understand the Bible for yourself, and you did need to have someone interpret it for you. So if this is you, and here's the person that's interpreting it for you, and here is the Bible, who is your authority? Is it the person, or is it the Bible? It's the person who's telling you what the Bible says. They become your authority and not the Bible itself. That's why biblical clarity is a biblical authority issue where you don't have to have an intermediary, a human intermediary, tell you what the Bible says. Well, there's also practical reasons for doing it. This is a paper that was published in 2017 by a researcher from the University of Indiana and Harvard University Well, they looked at churches over time. They looked at churches who said the Bible was inspired but not literal. That means they don't really believe it's inspired. They looked at churches who said the Bible was the literal word of God. And they looked at people who said it was really just a book of fables. And they looked at church attendance over the years. And the churches who said it wasn't inspired, it wasn't literal, have been hemorrhaging church members Evangelical churches have stayed the same. And look at the people who have no affiliation. It's going up in proportional to those who are leaving those churches. So when someone comes up and they say to you, you know, if you hold to those biblical doctrines, you're ruining evangelism. You're scaring people off from evangelism. You're you're anti-evangelistic. It's just the exact opposite. The churches that have stayed faithful to the word have maintained or even gained. Some membership. It's the exact opposite of what people are saying. And then the most important reason of all is that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul and others... ...held that we would give words their normal meaning and their normal context. I believe Dr. Hebert quoted this passage from Mark last night... ...when some people asked to the Lord, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? He went back and quoted from Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. He said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female... Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There was no debate in the Lord's mind whether these words were real, whether there was a real Adam and Eve. And then of course when it relates to salvation, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. That's pretty plain. So, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. You know what that's saying? There's really only two classes of people in this world. Not rich and poor, beautiful and ugly. Celebrities and non-celebrities. None of that silly stuff that people judge people by. There's only two groups of people. Those who are still in Adam... And those who have been redeemed who are now in christ you're either in adam or you are now in christ and that's it would to god that all of us are in this group in christ and that's where we want to be and that's why i see the bible as historical narrative and i give words their normal meaning in their normal context and these are answers to three key questions that not only I will get in a debate, but you might get talking with your friends or your neighbors, and Lord willing, we now have some answers to these in questions. Amen.